Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Julie Smith, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite food writers. It's about all of life through the prism of food. And this week, we're celebrating three years of Cooking the Books with its very first guest, Olivia Potts, her latest book, Butter, a Celebration. You are not trying to emulate some michelin star dessert you're making brownies but they're going to be the best brownies you've ever made and here's why her journey from the bar to butter is told with what nigella calls her devilish wit in her award-winning memoir a half-baked idea and now in a book that i reckon has got gongs written all over it she's the host of the spectator podcast she writes for the spectator magazine as well as running a successful catering company with her kitchen wife best friend and fellow food writer and cooking books guest kate young we began by looking back at the last three years for both of us. I'm feeling rather proud. Happy birthday. Thank you for having me back. Well, it's amazing. I mean, you know, yours was such a great introduction. It was about your life turning around after your mother died, turning your back on law, mm. going through the cordon bleu, the hardest of all blooming courses. What were you thinking? <laughs> to become an award-winning food writer. I mean, that's a journey. Take us back to that moment three years ago where you were just putting that book out into the world. Yeah, I mean, it felt in some ways uh, a little bit illegitimate to do because the whole story was about my my entry into food, my, my journey into falling in love with cooking and kitchens and, and ultimately professional cooking. But it was still so early in that journey. It was still really quite unformed. I'm not sure I really knew 100% what I wanted to do with those things that I'd learned. And yet there I was confidently writing a memoir about the whole thing. So it feels quite strange looking back onto it and that kind of baby cook who <laughs> didn't know which, which side was up. But that's what's so lovely about it. I mean, it was very mm. raw in many ways. It was very meditative. You could feel yourself stirring slowly to borrow somebody else's uh, food book title um, to to get to where you are now. That's the whole point of it's taking the reader with you on a journey. That's what really was so engaging and ultimately so award winning uh, about it. You know, the kind of feedback that you get from your mm. readers um, it must be such a, such a lovely thing when you've been so vulnerable, first as a writer, but also talking about something so incredibly raw as the death of your mother. It, it is a huge privilege. I get a huge number of people coming to me with their stories of grief and bereavement or of career changes. And sometimes, you know, the the Venn diagram of the two, which was obviously my my experience, Um and it, I mean, it just emphasises, it's almost a cliche, isn't it? The, the universality and the uniqueness of grief all at once. Um, yeah. And to be exposed to that on a, on a daily basis from readers who want to share their stories with me is, I suppose, something that I thought in the abstract might happen. But the reality of it is incredible. And it's, it is a combination of real joy and really difficult because that's, I suppose that's what grief and life is, really, isn't it? So, you know, I can't imagine that people would come to me with their stories of bereavement and it would be easy or continually uplifting. But very often they do that and then say, and then I turned a corner or and this chimed with me because. And that is that is the greatest joy, I think, of having written the book. Yeah. And it is a journey. It is a process. Yes. You go from A to B. Uh, or perhaps Zed, taking <laughs> quite a few chapters along the way. And I think that's what people 
possibly resonate with, you know, that it isn't just a quick fix. There's a whole load of new things to learn along the way in the highs and the terrible lows. I mean, obviously, if you're going to do a cordon bleu course, I mean, they're going to be a hell of a lot of highs <laughs> and incredible lows as well. Just because a lot of people who listen to Cooking the Books are would-be food writers mm. or food writers uh, who do all sorts of other things. Just explain to us what that journey has taken you to. You are a caterer, but you also write for The Spectator magazine. You do all sorts of things. Take, I do. take us through a life of a, of, a, of a food writer and a chef. Um, okay, so yes, I write books. I wrote the memoir first, and I then wrote uh, Butter, a Celebration, my first cookbook. Um, and I'm writing a proposal at the moment for my hopefully next cookbook. Um, I write The Spectator's Vintage Chef column. So I um, not reinvent, but perhaps bring back to life uh, naff or what I thought of as naff or old fashioned or kitsch dishes um, and talk a bit about their history, but mainly just say why they're actually, why Blamange is great or Ducca Lorange gets a bad rap, that kind of thing. <laughs> um, I write about food books, which is a total joy. I get to review books for various different places. Um, and I write long reads. I wrote a really long piece on marmalade and the marmalade awards. I've just written one on the history of the slow cooker or the crock pot, depending on what you call it. Um, and I run a catering company. So I have um, a little wedding catering company that uh, with fellow food writer Kate Young. And we go up and down the country building kitchens in garages and on hillsides and in church halls uh, and catering your wedding for you with sort of big sharing platters and slow roasted meats and like Ottolenghi style salads and big ballsy puddings and it, it it's absolutely brilliant. You've come a long way from your bar, <laughs> It's I mean, very is there different. Anything, is there anything that kind of equates with anything you did as a barrister? I think the there are two things. I used to say there's nothing. There's absolutely nothing. It's not true. Um, it's all about the, the writing side of what I do is all about storytelling. And that is the same. I was a criminal barrister. So it was very much about taking something complicated or something that possibly didn't have um, resonance within the life of, of whoever was actually making the judgment and trying to bring that story to life for them and, and explain it. And I think that's what I do to an extent with food all the all the food writing that I do is quite prose heavy it's got big chunky head notes and there's some personal narrative in there there's some history but essentially what I'm doing is saying you might have thought you can't do this but you can here's how we break it down in steps and make it accessible and celebratory and I think sort of taking something complicated breaking it down and in the register of the the reader or the listener is is kind of what I was doing at the bar and then from the catering side, I spend a lot of time solitary, either in my own kitchen or at my desk, or if I'm being honest, on my sofa at home, writing recipes or researching or writing schedules or shopping lists, you know, all that kind of boring thing. And then suddenly you're thrust into the midst of a bunch of people who you have to work alongside. Um, and that very strange working dichotomy is what I had at the bar as well you know you do you're sitting at your kitchen table on your own late at night with a stack of papers and then the next day you're robed up alongside a bunch of other people and having to remember how to have proper conversations and I I, I think I quite like that combination of life where you you do spend a lot of time alone 
but it's not 100% solitary. There are moments where you come together and there's teamwork and there's a buzz and there's a sort of, um, I suppose, a, a mutual purpose. Yeah. I mean, I see it as prep, 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 prep. You really love yeah. your history. You really love to go deep. You break things down, as you say, and you, you put it all back together in a glorious kind of uh, performance. I mean, both with your writing. I mean, Nigella called yours a devilish wit. And it is very, very engaging. But then, of course, on the catering stage, you know, you you produce these showstoppers. So there's an, a performance element about it. Oh, uh, yeah. And, 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 and therefore an adrenaline as well um and i think we do we, we only do a certain number of weddings a year because we are doing food writing but actually i think for me it's quite important that it's a small number because it, that you know wedding catering like being coronavirus it's quite anxiety inducing you know there's a lot of pressure yeah. on this one big day uh, and unlike the bar I, I like that when catering weddings but i don't think i am made for doing three a weekend i don't think i have that temperament i i want to know that i everything is finely tuned and then let's go for it and do it and then let's have a pint afterwards and and never think about it again (laughs) (laughs) let's talk about your new book butter i I just had a writing retreat here a creative writing retreat we've got a food writing retreat coming up but this was a creative writing novelists here Mm. and i showed them the book butter and they went somebody's written a whole book about butter and i said yes but just have a read of this and of course just one little bit of your glorious writing they're like oh wow this is interesting that you can write in a really beautiful way about butter first of all how great is it to have an outlet a whole book where you can really kick back and enjoy your writing rather than the kind of the constraints of magazine writing yeah it's it's wonderful although I really do have to be careful not to repeat myself. You can get away with using the same descriptive words uh, multiple times in subsequent columns. You can't do that across a book. So there's a lot of sort of control, find, primrose. Control, find, gorgeous. Oh, I've got to delete 25 references to the colour primrose, which <laughs> is a very nice descriptor for butter, but it gets old quickly. Um, so, yeah, and, you know, I, what I really wanted was for it to be cohesive. I wanted there to be an arc to every chapter and an arc to the chapters as it went through the book and and really going from sort of the most basic type of cooking of butter possible, which is making butter, all the way through to enriched laminated pastries. Um, And that meant really thinking carefully about the the structure and the organisation. And that was at times deeply frustrating, but actually the majority of it was just very satisfying. I love jigsaw puzzles and that's exactly how it felt. <laughs> there was a place yeah, for everything I, I, if you could just find it. To me, I was thinking that butter is, is kind of either chefy or farmy. Mm. It's, it's the ingredients most chefs won't do without. I remember my very first book 30 years ago was The Mediterranean Health Diet and I remember going to, I was interviewing Marco Pierre White back at, at, when he was at Harvey's and he yeah. was a gorgeous young gastro punk and, you know, I said to him, you know, would you do some recipes for, for me? And he said, well, I won't but I'll introduce you to all the people who come out of my kitchen. He sent me on this fantastic tour around Britain, introducing me to all the people he'd trained. But he said, no, because you don't use butter in the Mediterranean diet. And any chef worth his salt is always going to use butter. And, you know, that was such an interesting thing because the way that you talk about butter, the way that butter is used in every recipe is is for texture and it's for super flavor it's mm. for all that umami and god you really go into that don't you <laughs> i mean what a joy what a joy 
that's the cordon bleuness of you, isn't it? I, I think so. I mean, I think I I was keen to go to the cordon bleu, particularly keen to do patisserie, because I came to cooking from a place of real ignorance. So I didn't, you know, my mum was quite a good domestic cook, but she didn't enjoy it. Um, so I... I learned to love books from her, but I didn't learn to love baking cakes. So I actually learned to love menus from her, but that's a different story. Um, so I didn't grow up at her apron strings watching her at the stove. I had absolutely no instinct for cooking whatsoever. So often when you're doing um, cuisine as opposed to patisserie, there's there's a lot that relies on your own kind of culinary intuition um, and the the fresh produce that you're using because it's been grown or raised uh, in different conditions is going to have different water content it's going to behave in different ways it's going to have different fat levels it it needs you to know what you're doing to achieve if not perfection then you know a high result yeah patisserie is not like that it measures everything out to a gram you have to um process it in a very particular way and that's what puts loads of people off but for me that was ideal because i could follow an incredibly neurotic recipe in an incredibly neurotic way and and pretty much get the result that I was that I should have done the other end or at least know why I didn't so that's very much what took me to patisserie um but what I realized because I had this weird combination of absolutely zero knowledge to quite technical sort of quasi-professional knowledge was that there's this middle ground that we don't don't really have when it comes to cooking with and baking with butter at home that really it can just make pretty much everything better if you use it in the right quantities in the right way. And what I wanted to do was to take all this, yeah, quasi-professional knowledge, strip all the chef out of it, and then put it in a, in a book that really was just filled to the brim with celebration, put it in your kitchen and say, you can use this knowledge to make yeah. your home cook. You are not trying to emulate some Michelin star dessert. You're making brownies, but they're going to be the best brownies you've ever made. And here's yeah. why. And I think yeah. explaining the why, that's the cookbook that I want. I, if someone tells me why I'm doing stuff, I'll do it. If they don't, oh, you know, I might know better than them. I might skip a step. <laughs> <laughs> and to quote Nigella again, she says that you explain, you educate and you inspire. Oh. And, and that is what, she, what what you do. I mean, you divide your life, you say, before butter and after butter mm. with appropriate capitals. Um, <laughs> and that's what I, I really loved about this. And it reminded me too, because actually, I'll tell you, uh, since we first talked three years mm. ago, I did the Leaths course because did of you, you doing the Cordon Bleu course. Yes. And and so I did six months of Leaths and I revisited the Bernoisette after mm. reading it, it, about it in your book. Because at the writer's retreat, I had a spare cauliflower. And what do you do with cauliflower? You can either go Waterlangi or you can do Bernoisette set which yeah. came from one of the leafs um, modules and it was heaven so i mean glad. it's and it's so easy isn't it yeah i mean burn was it burnt butter I know. but you know not even burnt, brown butter let's <laughs> be um you know but but what a difference that makes does. why does it elevate a dish like something like a roast cauliflower um because the the thing that that butter has in it are the the sugars that occur naturally in milk um, and cream and therefore in butter so what you are doing is you are caramelizing those sugars when you create bernoisette so you are getting as you do with with any caramel this incredible complexity not just the sweetness but actually a really punchy savory note you're getting it it, it 
taste and smell sort of nutty. Um, there's a very slight bitterness to it, but a good one like you like you get with caramel. It's the same thing as when you properly brown a piece of meat or um, you... Oh, what else are you caramelising? Um, well, anything. You know, you can do it with vegetables as well, but you are, you are yeah. taking those natural sugars and you are making them a hundred times more interesting and... Mm attractive and and if if you're not familiar with doing it people can't guess what it is i made um i made for my my son's birthday cake last weekend um uh burnt butter icing which is actually in in the book but i think i originally learned it from nigella um and people cannot work out what it is and, and you know they they literally what's this brown stuff what is it yeah. you're going like it's burnt butter icing and then that sounds horrible oh you made a mistake <laughs> oh but it came out so well <laughs> but it 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 is just so much more than the sum of its parts i think and it's so easy to do all you are doing is heating the butter to a point where it goes past boiling and then those sugars start to the the solids and the liquid start to separately brown and take on um a matrix a matrix of flavors yeah, yeah, it's the word caramelized that sells it to me. Yeah. Um, the other thing, other than it being very chefy, is that it's very farmy, as I said. Mm. Um, and, and I love that. It's, it feels very zeitgeisty. You know, we are looking back to, you know, the old ways. It's interesting that you're writing about vintage foods as well, uh, vintage recipes. Um, that sort of going back to what we've lost, that really essential look at where food comes from and its place in our diets and mm. in our heritage and in our identity feels incredibly important right now when we're losing a lot to industrialization you know climate change it forces us to rethink who we are and what Mm. we're eating and how we are eating things you know we fetishize butter in our modern food culture don't we 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 love that small batch handmade cultured butter so it feeds into that as well but how does something that was such a necessity something so simple become so achingly cool um, I think it's done a similar thing to sourdough and to cheese. We, you can't make cultured butter or artisan butter at the scale you can make non-cultured butter. I mean, it's all sort of in in the name artisan, but it's the same. It's the same as sourdough. It's the same as um, some of the most celebrated British cheeses. You ha- you are necessarily making them um, in in smaller quantities, and that's because the the butter that we know, the butter that, that we grew up with before this revival, um, was deliberately homogenous. And that was because it came after the Industrial Revolution and they were able to put it through machines. They were able to precisely decide what went in and came out of it. It wasn't fermented because it didn't need to sit around. So it lost that kind of interest and flavour. But it was also significantly shelf-stable and it could be transported around the country. Um, and it's easy now to be a little bit sniffy about that and say oh well who'd who'd want your morrison's basics when you could have incredible homemade small batch cultured fermented butter with bacteria that we know all about well it must have been amazing to be able to produce butter that could go to every household in the country and to make it affordable in a way that it wasn't before and to be able really to take it off the farm it couldn't be taken off the farm in any realistic commercial way beforehand but we are now in a position where we've sort of come right back round, and we are appreciating the skill that goes into doing it by hand and uh 
judging it and looking at it by taste and colour and knowing what is specific in the, you know, the bioculture of that area and the cows that are producing that milk and the, you know, the grass that they're eating. That is exciting. But it's exciting in the same way, as I say, like sourdough and, and cheese are and maybe charcuterie. Like it is, it is... um viable now because we live in a country that some of the people who live here have disposable income to be able to buy it it's expensive to produce it's expensive to buy it is beautiful and worth celebrating and we should absolutely be supporting the producers who do it but we need to be alive to the fact that the the reason it's here is because we are hugely privileged to have the the skill of those producers but also the money to be able to buy it and support that totally i mean i totally get that and it is very much your first food moment isn't it it's the it's the big intro uh which sets out as you say a manifesto mm. um and a friend called it quietly radical I which was that. the loveliest thing i could i i it was sort of exactly what i wanted it to be without ever articulating that in in my own head i think i i I really, I really wrestled with the fact that if I was going to write a book about butter, there are a lot of people who think that there, there should be limits put on how much you eat and what you eat. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, a little bit of what you fancy does you good, but that beyond that, we should really be sort of clamping down on it. Yeah. It is up to any individual what they put in their body. I'm, I am not interested in policing any of that. And I didn't want yeah. any caveat whatsoever in the book that said you know just just a little treat just a little get like I was that's not me you know I wanted to say enjoy butter with wild abandon there is virtue in being good to yourself and treating your body with respect and pleasure and enjoying the process of cooking and the process of eating and sometimes sharing that food with others and sometimes just having it on your own in a bowl on the sofa. And I I didn't want any moment where I sort of finger whacked. I just wanted to say there are so many diet books out there. They sell really upsettingly well. (laughs) I have no time for diet culture. I have no time for fat phobia. I have no time for policing. Enjoy butter and enjoy enjoying butter without reservation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, your second food moment is about homemade butter. There's this homey kind of element to this, as well as the very chefy stuff as well. Tell us why you chose that. Um, I think for me, ho- homemade butter, the first time I made it, it I mean, I'm, it was quite chaotic. <laughs> I made it in a little kitchen in um, a house that I shared with two girls in Crouch End. Um, and I didn't have a stand mixer or anything like that. I just went at it with, I think I just did it with a whisk. I might have done it with a, with an electric hand whisk, but it might have just been a whisk. And, you know, the, the, there's a moment when you think it's not going to work and you've just whip, whipped cream and whipped cream and it's gone stiff. And then it splits and you start to see tiny little globules, globules of gold, which is popcorn butter, which is the the first sign that you are making butter. And when that happens, the buttermilk properly splits out. Like there there is absolutely no question as to whether or not you're successfully making butter because it just sloshes. And if you're making it in a stand mixer, you need which as we've established I wasn't because I was I had no idea what I was doing, you need to have cling film around the top of the bowl because otherwise the you'll just end up with buttermilk wallpaper in your walls um and that moment where it split out it felt like 
alchemy. And it was quite early in my cooking and baking journey. And I was I was kneading the butter because you have to you have to physically knead the butter with ice water to get all the buttermilk out of it because it is the buttermilk which can go off. Butter, once you've made it, is relatively stable, um, particularly if you're refrigerating it, particularly if you've got salt in it. Um, and my sister was there and she was like, Liv, this is... <laughs> This is disgusting. <laughs> and I was like, what are you talking about? This is, I am, I am performing actual magic. Did you see, this was a pot of cream from my fridge. And now this is 100% butter. And she was like, no, it is, it is disgusting. And to her credit, she did eat it on toast and she did say it was delicious. Thank God. Otherwise we may no longer be speaking. But it was, it was so, it, it really was chaotic. And it was so early in, in my journey and yet it was a kind of a moment of realising what you can do if you, not even if you put your mind to it, because it's not that hard. Just if you mm-hmm. have a, if you have a go. Yeah. Um, and I really, People have really been doing that. it for hundreds of years, let's be honest. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Can't, can't be that hard, can it? Um, <laughs> and it's not. And I, yeah, I absolutely loved it. And now, and I re- like, this makes me sound like such a knob. If I have cream in the fridge, which is going to go off, I make butter. And the, the reason that I'm not a knob is because I always have cream in the fridge that's about to go off because I am not sufficiently organised for that not to be the case. But now I do just put it in my sand mixer and let it whirl around. And I've got a big lump of homemade butter. And that's, that's amazing. Like the fact that you can do that with cream on the turn that you would literally otherwise pour down your sink, I think is incredible. And it is then, you know, you can, I often do just spread it on bread or or, or, or on toast but you can do a thousand different things with it whether you're flavoring it with things or actually using it as an ingredient yeah. I honestly think it's magical absolutely and I, you know I was talking to Tamara Adler uh, a while back you know who wrote the wonderful mm. everlasting meal and it's it's basically about throw away all the gadgets yes because it stops you learning to cook to mm. use up waste to be really sustainable in your actual approach if you've got cream that's going off make it into something else yeah. you know it's it's really important um making things into other things uh mars bar crispy bites your third <laughs> food moment this is where we deviate from the whole chefiness and yeah. this is in fact your husband sam's favorite recipe in the entire book you're not very happy about that are you yeah it's really hurtful I mean, apart from the fact that it's Mars Bar Crispy Bites, it's not my recipe. It is my friend Adam's recipe, who sent it to me on Facebook about 12 years ago before I could cook. Um, and I made them and they were obviously completely delicious. It is Mars Bars melted with butter around Rice Krispies. And then you put a layer of chocolate on top. Like, <laughs> it is such school fair food. Like, it is, it is absolutely the type of thing you make with, like, crispy cakes. Like, it's yeah. so easy. But it is... I mean, this is the really annoying, like Sam's right. It is so delicious. It is so good. And I wanted this whole chapter of, of butter and sugar. Each of, each of the chapters in the book is butter plus something. So butter plus vegetables, butter plus fish, butter plus meat. And as you get into the sort of sweet baking stuff, it becomes slightly more techniquey. So it's butter plus friction for making pastry, butter plus air for like cakes and sheep, butter plus layers. But before you get to that, you have butter and sugar. And there is nothing technical in that chapter. It is truly a celebration of the greatest marriage that exists. Um, And it's got blondies in there. It's got brownies in there. They're not, and cookies, and it is not complicated. But at the very beginning, 
are these stupid Mars bar crispies that Adam sent me the recipe for. Um, and I can't believe that I wrote that recipe into my book about butter, but also I couldn't possibly not have done because it is one of the greatest joys in my kitchen. They hang around for no time whatsoever because everyone just gobbles them down and they rely on an absolutely great whacking dose of butter. And that's what makes them good. Which is what it's all about. But it's set against your fourth food moment, which is the brioche (laughs) feuilleton, which is about as chefy, about as cordon bleu as it could possibly be. Now, 10 years ago, when you were a baby barrister, you would never have thought that you would be doing something like a brioche. Can you just unfurl those feuilles for a moment and then put them back together for us so that we can understand how ridiculously uh, difficult this is. So, so brioche feuillete is um, brioche dough as opposed to croissant dough. So um, it is enriched. It's got loads of egg in it and some sugar, which means that it's sort of like puffy bread cakey dough unlike the very thin croissant layers that you get. But then it is folded like you would fold croissant dough into lots and lots of layers so you get the combination of the sort of foldy crispiness and then the really punchy incredible richness of brioche but I mean the the thing that's incredible about brioche is that it is insanely rich but it's also the the experience of eating it it's kind of light. Like, it almost doesn't make sense. You eat it and you think, oh, I could probably spread some butter on here, uh, which you shouldn't. So it is folded brioche, folded repeatedly until it creates these incredible layers and folds and, and furls. And when I first encountered it, I think on Instagram, I thought, this is what happens when chefs have too much time on their hands. And the, the, the idea that just because you can doesn't mean you should. And then when I was writing the butter book, I thought, well, it's the logical conclusion to butter, isn't it? If I'm going to write about brioche and I'm going to write about croissant and this thing exists, I should at least have a go and decide what I think of it. And I realised that not only is it a complete joy, it is, it is the best bits of both brioche and croissant. It is so much easier to make than croissants. Croissants are, I would say, harder than any other laminated pastry because of the way in which you have to shape them. So although we use it because it's unflavoured and sort of unadorned, we use it as this base from which to kind of work your way up in terms of complexity. And actually, I think that's a real error. It is so much easier to make pan au chocolat and pan au raisin or any kind of croissant with anything inside it or brioche feuilleté. Actually, if you're intimidated by croissants, you almost just start at the other end and work backwards. And you'll find that as you get more and more used to handling the dough, you will then be able to tackle the shaping of them, which is the hardest bit. Um, and also, I think that if you've gone to the effort of, make, of learning how to make croissant dough, then you deserve to do all the glorious bits afterwards where you flavour it with fantastic things or add in the, the eggs and the sugar for the brioche. Um, I sort of want people who follow those recipes to just run away with them and to put in whatever their heart desires. And I hope that that chapter, although it is the most complicated chapter and therefore the most intimidating one, opens that up to people. Because for the vast majority of those kind of things, 
It is not that they are really difficult. It's that domestically they take ages to do because you are using a domestic fridge and you need things to be cold. So you have to give the dough time to rest each time. You don't have a sheeter like they do in professional bakeries where they just whip stuff through and then pop it into a fridge that's significantly colder than yours and then into a proving drawer, which will do their work in half the time. As long as you are capable of breaking it up and knowing where you can break the process and you can pop things where they need to be and let them do their thing and you go off and do something else. You can make incredible pastries that are impressive, but I don't really care about that. They are delicious and celebratory and will make your life better. You just need to know why you can't make them in the way that professional bakeries can in the same time constraints. You've come on this massive journey. You've got your Guild of Food Writers debut cookbook award. You're, you've already in the top 10 books of the year with butter. Um, you'll probably get another award with this one. It's, it's a wonderful celebration of so many things that we love and need to, to know about cookery and food writing. What next? What do you do with all of this? Are you plotting something else already? Um, I think all I really want to do is write cookbooks. And I think I found this part of my life that makes me really happy and that I think I'm quite good at. I think I'm quite good at writing complicated recipes in a way that makes them accessible to people who are interested in home cooking. Um, and I just want to keep doing that in different ways. Um, I think it will come as no surprise to people who yeah. consume cookbooks or have any kind of uh, contact with the publishing industry. Man could not live on cookbook writing alone, <laughs> unless unless you're Jamie or Nigella. You're you're gonna you, you need to have other streams of income. And I love the other stuff that I do. I love hosting podcast i love uh weekly writing i've just started some restaurant reviewing i love catering weddings but actually what i would want to be remembered for i think would be writing cookbooks and the only thing that you can do for that is keep writing cookbooks keep plugging away and i think i look at the cookbook writers that i respect most people like dana henry who just turn out consistently brilliant recipes in smart books with beautiful writing inside them and I think that's it that's all I want to do and if someone will let me keep doing that I will keep doing it thanks for listening do follow me on instagram i'm at food chili smith and you can also find a little surprise over on substack each week as I ask my guests for a little extra something and I'll see you next week 